Well, good morning. Welcome to Seabreeze. You can go ahead and take a seat. My name is Andrew, and I'm the youth pastor here. We're glad you could join us today. So let's start by first taking out our connection card. It's in your program, and it looks just like this. Uh, if you're a regular attender or a member, you can go ahead and fill in your name and any contact information that might have changed. And to all of our guests, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us this morning. The connection card is our way of connecting with you, but also giving you information about uh, in, uh, upcoming events that might be of interest to you. And so you can fill out, fill out as much information as you're comfortable with. And please let us know how you found out about Seabreeze. And let's take a few minutes, a few moments, and we'll fill this out together. So as a church, one of our values is growth requires community. We, we recognize that if we really want to go deeper in our relationship with God, we also need to have deeper relationships with other people. So we place a high value on people and spending time getting to know each other. Relationships grow and deepen as we live life together and share experiences. Whether those experiences are sharing food or doing things together, our deepest relationships are really with people that we spend time with. So even though in the summer we don't have growth groups, we still have plenty of opportunities uh, for you to connect with each other. You'll find the information about those events in the program every week. I'd encourage you to check this program out this week. Uh, you'll see things like our, our next Summer Nights event coming up this Wednesday. Uh, you'll also see over the next few weekends, we have a few other events where you guys can connect. Uh, we have a, a women's walk and we have a men's hike coming up. So all three of these are great opportunities for you and your families to grow as you deepen your relationships here in the Seabreeze community. You know, I'd really encourage you to go to them. Uh, they're going to be a really helpful and a good opportunity to connect. And as a reminder, please make sure that your phone is on silent and then turn to the message insert in your program as Bevan continues our message series, Peeled. Thanks, Andrew. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. My wife and I have been on vacation for the past couple of weeks. and We had a great time of rest and refreshment, but it is good to be back. This past week, I stood in front of a pile of watermelons trying to pick out a good one. I was tasked with choosing the July 4th watermelon. And maybe uh, you've heard the same thing, but I've heard that a good watermelon makes a certain sound when you thump it. So I picked up a watermelon that looked good to me, and I thumped it. And then I remembered, I have no idea what a good watermelon <laughs> is supposed to sound like. So I ended up doing what I always do at this point. I just pretty much guessed. Now, it turned out to be a good watermelon. But I honestly, I can't tell you why, and I have no confidence the next time I'm standing in front of a bunch of watermelon that I'll make a better decision. Now, good is the word that we use to describe our goal when it comes to fruit selection. We want to pick out a good piece of fruit. Now, by good, we mean good tasting, not good looking. What we're really concerned about is what it tastes like when it's peeled or when we get beyond the rind, on, on the inside. Now, we have a, a similar goal when it comes to people. We want to pick out good friends, not bad friends. And if we're hiring, we want to hire good people, not bad employees. And when it comes to some of the bigger decisions in life, especially a decision like marriage, we really, really, really want to pick out a good person, not a bad person. But the problem is, like me with that watermelon, we're not exactly sure how to do that. Because, well, we can't see beyond the surface of a person. So we try to, to get our best feel and look at all the data that we can, 
But we just can't see what's true of someone on the inside. And so we usually end up kind of making more of a guest and living with the decisions that we make. Now, this goodness mystery isn't just a challenge when it comes to picking out good people. It is particularly frustrating and challenging when it comes to trying to be a good person. Most of us really do want to be good on the inside. I spoke with someone recently who is in the latter stage of his life. He's nearing the end, and as the conversation progressed, I asked him if he was ready to face the next life. And he said something that I've heard a lot, and you've probably heard this too. He said, well, I hope so. I've always tried to be a, what? Good person. You hear this a lot. But as we talked, I became pretty clear and pretty aware of the fact that he lacked the certainty of his goodness. It's kind of like me picking out that watermelon. I wanted to pick a good one, but he wasn't really sure if he had been good enough. Now, of course, the goodness stakes of a life lived are much, much higher than in picking out a piece of fruit. I mean, you can return a bad piece of fruit. I don't know if you knew that. You can return a bad piece of fruit. But most of us just kind of chalk a bad piece of fruit up as an acceptable loss, and we move on. But we can't do that with life. We only get one life to live. We can't return it. And if it turns out to be not as good as we had thought we might turn out to be, it's not an acceptable loss for us. We can't just hope for a better effort next time because this is our one and only life to live. Now, in this series, we've been looking at two verses in the New Testament that summarize the qualities of goodness on the inside, who we really are when we are peeled by the pressures of life. This is what we read in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The word we're looking at today, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You can't pass a law and expect people to be able to do this. This is tough to come up with. Now, nine pieces of fruit are listed. But you really could summarize all of them in the one word, goodness. It's kind of like my watermelon. My summary word for my watermelon is, it's good. It was a good watermelon. But of course, much more could be said about that watermelon than just the word good. It was, it was sweet. The texture was crisp. And I could go on and on. Goodness is a summary word. It describes the kind of fruit that we want and the kind of life that we want in summary fashion. But it's when you look at the specifics of what goodness really is, that's when you realize, boy, it's going to take much more than just human effort to really, truly be a good person. Because it turns out a good person is someone who loves, not just someone who feels warm, vague, general feelings of, of, of happiness towards people. That's hard with some people to come up with, but that's not what love is. Love is characterized by a person who regularly inconveniences themselves for the benefit of somebody else. Now, that's really hard to do, especially with some people. And it turns out a good person is someone who's characterized by joy. Their, their inner sense of delight is not dependent on the circumstances of life that they're facing. Well, that is pretty much impossible to do. 
And a good person has peace. They have a deep inner calm in the face of challenges. That's not easy to do. And they are patient. They are willing to invest in the things that really last and make a difference over time and into eternity. They don't just live for the buzz of the day or the week or the month or even just this life. And they are kind. A good person is kind. They, they look at people and they thoughtfully move towards people with the desire and then the ability to do what is of real help to them because they've thought about what's helpful. They're kind. And they are faithful. They are gentle. And they are self-controlled, the three words we're going to look at in the coming Sundays. So it's when you consider the specifics of goodness that it becomes apparent that we all have a goodness problem. Merely trying to be good is not going to be good enough. That's because whenever good rises in our heart, bad seems to rise up right there next to it to challenge it. In fact, the word good in the Bible is almost always found right next to or close to the word evil. They are a fight, a struggle. So the effort to be good is, is a fight. It's a struggle to, against the pull to be bad. Now, in Romans, the New Testament book of Romans, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, first century church planner, written to the church in Rome, in chapter 7 of this book, the Apostle Paul puts to words the struggle that we know all too well. Here's what he says in verses 15 through 20. Now, let me warn you, as I get into this, it kind of is a complicated kind of meandering. So just hang with me, and we're going to work our way through this to to work on the understanding of it. But this is what it says, Romans 7, 15 through 20. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Got it? (laughs) That's a lot of do's. And it's easy to kind of get lost in the weeds. But there's some really important truths to understand in what's being said here. Paul is basically asking the question that we've all asked repeatedly about ourselves. What is wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And if we're ever going to allow God to grow the fruit of goodness in us, we need to listen very carefully to the diagnosis that we're given in these verses. This is not just a meandering description of, I can't seem to do good. It is partly that, but there's a lot of understanding that comes in these verses. And if we misdiagnose the problem of goodness, we will mistreat it, and we will keep fighting a losing battle between good and bad. Now, Paul makes it very clear in these verses that the problem isn't just intent. Now, that can be a problem. If you don't intend to do good, well, of course, you're not going to do good. But for many people, and I'm just going to assume that for most of us in this room, we really want to do good. But that's not enough. 
He says, I agree that the law is good. What he's saying, I agree that what God has said is good really is good. I agree with that. I don't have any, any disagreement with what God has said is good. And in addition to that, he says, I have the desire to do what is good. I really want to do it. The problem is, I just can't. I just can't seem to consistently carry it out. What's wrong with me, he says? It's the same thing that's wrong with all of us. When it comes to being good, we have two major problems. Problem number one, we're going to look at these two this morning. Problem number one is we have a power problem. We have a power problem. We lack the power to be good. Now, we can do some good things, but to really, truly be good, we just don't have the juice. We don't have the power. What that means is the battle against bad cannot be won surely by our willpower. We have a will, and it's powerful, but it's not powerful enough. We can't just decide to do good in our minds. That's why Paul says, I don't understand what I do. Why doesn't he understand? Well, it's because our mind, it turns out, is not the only power on the battlefield between good and bad. He says, for what I want to do, I do not do. In other words, I I look at what I end up doing, and I clearly remember deciding in my mind I wasn't going to do that. I remember the moment when I said, I'm never doing that again. I don't ever want to do that again, and here I am doing it again. Why? The conclusion is, it's no longer I myself who do it. What he's saying is, it turns out I'm not the only power at work. My mind and my will are not the only power at work in determining what I actually end up doing. So what's the other power? He says, it is sin living in me. Wait, sin is alive? Now, we tend to think sin is just the bad stuff that we do from time to time that we'd rather not do. But if sin is alive, if it's living, if it's not just a definition of wrong, that means that sin has all of the power that every living thing has. To be alive, every living thing has a will to survive, a will to grow, a will to multiply. So if sin is alive, what that means is it wants to stay alive, to survive. It, it doesn't want to just stay where it is. It wants to expand. It wants to multiply into more and more areas. And to make matters worse, sin isn't just kind of living out there somewhere. Where is it living? It's in me and it's in you. That's a problem. Where exactly is it hanging out? Paul says, in my flesh. My body. What that means is I can't just lock the front door and leave sin outside. I can't run from sin. I can't hide from sin. I can't go on vacation. I can't go on a cruise. I can't do amazing things and stay away from sin because wherever I go, I go. And sin's hanging out on the inside. Now, just to be clear, this isn't Paul making any kind of an excuse for what he does. This is not an excuse for sin. You know, if you hit someone, you can't look at your hand and say, <laughs> my hand, it, you know, get, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> does stuff every once in a while. So my hand is sorry. No, no, you, 
your hand is you, right? I mean, you can't identify the parts of your body, but all the parts are you, and you bear responsibility for what your hand does because, well, it's you. So in the same way, Paul is not saying, yeah, you know, I know I sinned again, but it was my crazy body acting up like it does. So not on me. It was sin living in me that did this. No, this isn't an excuse for sin. This is a very important and clear diagnosis of the problem of sin. Six years ago, when the doctor found some cancer cells on my back, the purpose of that diagnosis and the surgery that followed was not to excuse the growth of cancer, but to remove it. Sin is, well, it is like a spiritual cancer. Cancer is referred to as the silent killer because you don't always feel it as it grows and multiplies. We can build patterns of sin and not really feel anything. But sin, like cancer, destroys life. It destroys relationships. It chews up people. It chews up our purpose. It, it consumes entire lives. So this is not Paul saying, hey, I didn't do it. It was my body. What he's saying is, I didn't do it all by myself. It wasn't just me. This is what he says. It, it is no longer I myself who do it. You know, I did it but I had help. It wasn't just me. So now that I know where this power lives, this power of sin lives, I have a much better chance of dealing with it. Well, how did sin become a living power? And then how did it come to take up residence in my body? I don't ever remember inviting it in. I don't remember feeding it. I, how did it come to take up residence in my flesh? Well, it came from the kind of life that we have. We, among all of creation, are unique in the kind of life that God has given us. This is very clear as you read through the creation story in the book of Genesis. As you read through creation, you see God creating life, and usually it's just God speaking, and there that kind of life is. But when it comes to human life, the story pauses, and we are given more detail into the creative act of bringing the first human, Adam, to life. And the reason is to make the point that we are very different. Yeah, there's some similarities to other kinds of life, but we are vastly different. Here's what we read about the creation of the first human life. Genesis 2, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, and the man became a living being. So this was very different from any other kind of life. This is referred to in other parts of Genesis' story as being made in the image of God. Now, we're not God, but there are some things that are true of us because of some things that are true of God. We are made in His image. So our life is a weaving together of the physical dust, and the spiritual breath of God. We have souls, not just bodies. And these are intertwined. They're woven together. We're not just a soul kind of hanging out in a container all by itself. That These are woven together. Well, why did God make us this way? Why did he give us this kind of life? 
It was so that we might have the capacity for relationship with him and for participation in what he is doing in this world. In order for us to have a relationship with him, to, to love him and to know of his love for us, we needed to be created in his image. For us to be able to actually take a part in what he's doing in the world, we needed to be made in his image. In fact, this is required for us to have a relationship with each other and to partner together. We, we need to be made in this way. And in order for this, both relationship and participation to be possible, we had to be given a measure of real autonomy, freedom. Because love is a choice. Obedience, following is a choice. Without freedom, there can be no love. So God gave us a measure of independent power. Not God's power, but the power of freedom. With it, we could either love God or not love him. We could obey him or not obey him. Without this kind of life, the most we could ever hope for is to be God's minions, God's robots. Now, the place where this power, this freedom, converges and finds real expression is the human body. It's the place where our choices, where our freedom become real. We can imagine all kinds of things in our mind, but we exercise that free thinking in real freedom when our bodies do something, when we walk somewhere, when we write something, when we use our mouth to say something. So our bodies is the place where this power converges. It's the place where the freedom is real. This means that everything that we do with our bodies has a tremendous power attached to it. Imagine a footprint hitting the ground and echoing into eternity. That's the power that our bodies have. We can't hear it. We can't often see it. But that's who we are. Our bodies were designed to partner with the eternal plan of God. We are a mixture of dust and divinity. We're not God, but we are a unique kind of life. And so when Adam and Eve and then all of their descendants, all of us, decided to exercise this freedom and to separate ourselves from God, to be independent and use our bodies for our own purposes, we cut ourselves off from the power of God. But the semi-autonomous kind of power of freedom that is expressed through our bodies remained. So now if we decide to do what is good, we do so without God's help. It's just our effort. A good way to think about it, it's, it's like we're running on battery power now. We got some power, but it's, it's dimming. We are fighting the power of darkness. Out there and in here, with an ever-dimming flashlight. That is a losing proposition. This is why our willpower will never be enough to be good. So what can we do? Well, the point really is, on our own, nothing. I mean, we can shake the flashlight like you do when the batteries are dying. You might get a little more flicker and a little more light. But 
the batteries are still dimming. The power is still battery powered. There's nothing we can do. What we need is a new power. This is the sub-point under this problem. We have a power problem. The only answer is a new power. We need a new power. If we're to have a fighting chance to do good and become good, we will need a power source to plug into that can replace the weakening power of our willpower. So just a few verses after this, the Apostle Paul pens the most important question that any living human being can ever ask, and that is this in verse 24. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Not what can I do, what new plan, how can I realign my willpower to do better? That's fine, but that's not going to solve the problem. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The answer is found in the very next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God came to our rescue and offered us a way to be forgiven and to be reconciled with him and reconnected to him. And that way is through, that key word, through Jesus Christ. There's no other plug that's going to power us. Jesus was God in flesh, born here on earth. And what was really happening is this is kind of how God, well, not kind of, this is how God ran a power line from heaven to us here on earth. This is the only way that we can access the power of his spirit. This is why goodness and all of its eight specific qualities are listed in the verses we're looking through as fruits of the spirit, not the fruit of human effort. These are not just goals that we can accomplish without the power of the Spirit, we cannot do this. Now, one of the big differences that's important to understand between battery and the power of a plug is mobility. Under battery power, you can go wherever you want. That's the beauty of batteries. There's, there's no extension cord. You, you can go wherever you want. But if you're going to plug into the stable current of AC power, you need to stay pretty close to where the plug is. You, you can't go further than where the extension cord goes. And if you, if you go too far, then poof, you're unplugged. Yeah. And it's not like battery power where it just kind of starts fading slowly. No, the power just ends. And this is important to understand because this is how it is when we decide to reconnect with God through his son, Jesus Christ. We are plugging back into the power of God. But in order for us to practically experience that power, We can't go off wondering on our own now. I mean, we can, but if we do, there's no power. This is why we plug into the body of Christ, the church, and we do our part. Not because, well, Christians should probably go to church, but because this is one of the prongs in the plug that provides power to us. If we separate ourselves from and go on our own, apart from his body, the church, we can do that, but there's no power there. And we really struggle to be good. This is why we plug into his word, the Bible, and work on trying to figure out not only how to understand it, but how to do it. Not because, well, Christians should probably learn the Bible and do it, but because this is another one of the prongs of the plug of power, where the the Holy Spirit's power comes through this. 
The New Testament refers to this as walking in the Spirit. The idea really is staying close to His power. You know, it's like walking with a person. If I, if I go on a walk with my wife this evening, the implication is we're in reasonable proximity to each other. If we walk out the front door and I go right and she goes left, we're walking, but we're not walking together. We're not going on a walk. That's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. If, if we decide, you know what, I really need to get reconnected, I need forgiveness, I, I need the power, and then we just go walk off on our own, we're not walking with the Spirit. Now, we all wonder. We all struggle with this. But to be a follower of Christ means that as we wonder, we realize, oh, oh, i got to get back on track. And we are doing this over and over again, wandering away, and, and we begin to sense the lack of power, and then, well, i got to get back. i got to get close. If we want the power to bring about genuine change and goodness. But it turns out we don't just have a power problem. The second problem is we have a past problem. It turns out our body is not only where sin hangs out. Our body also is the place that records and then replays in the future what we do in the form of habits. Whatever we do in the past is projected into the future as a pattern. Paul talks about this in the next verses in Romans 7, 21 through 23. He says this, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Now, the key word in these verses is the word law. The word law appears five times. So if we're going to understand these, we first need to get a clear understanding. What is a law? What does the law mean? Webster defines law as a binding rule of conduct. The key word is binding. In order for it to be a law, what that means is it's got the bite of reality to it. If you defy the law, you're bound to the consequences of defying the law. That's what makes it a law. So when it comes to creation, nature, we have what we call the laws of nature. Not because some country or every country decided to pass these laws like we do our country laws, but because we've observed that this is the way reality works. These are laws. So, for example, one of those laws is the law of gravity. If you defy the law of gravity, what happens? You lose because it's a law. We are bound to that law. It's got the teeth of reality to it. So Paul identifies a law that's at work within us, that we're bound to at the beginning of this, these verses. He says, when I want to do good, evil's right there with me. It's like a law. I, I can't get away from this. I'm bound to this. Why is that? Well, as I said, it's not just that we have a power problem. We also have a past problem. It turns out that there are three laws at work whenever we try to do good. Three laws that we are bound to in three realms. There's the law of God. He says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. God's law is what God says is good and what God says is bad. It has the bite of reality to it. The consequences are not as quick as when we defy gravity, but they are as real. 
they will show up in time. And the fact that God has told us what is good is the very reason why we want to do good. Now, even if someone has never read the Bible or is completely unaware of the Bible, the laws of God are, are the outline of it is written into our hearts. This is why we are moral beings, because of God's law. We are bound to it. This is why we feel guilt. This is why we want to do good, because there is the existence of God's law. Without it, we wouldn't be moral people. We are bound to that. But, Paul goes on to say, I see another law. So there's God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. So this is two other laws. It's talking about the law of my body and the law of my mind. We are bound to the law of our body, and we are bound to the law of our mind. Well, what are these laws? First of all, what's the body law? I think I could summarize it best by saying this. We are bound to the past choices that we've made with our bodies. It's a law. Again, it's not a law that someone passed, but it's a law of reality. As I said, our bodies record and replay what we do. We experience that in the form of habits or patterns. The reason is, again, back to the way we were made. We were designed with the capacity to partner with God in the work that he's doing in the world. We were designed, this is amazing, to do things that echo into eternity. That's huge. What that means is that the weight of every choice that we make leaves this giant footprint. Again, we don't see it, we don't hear it, but it's real. We are bound to it. And with repetition, those footprints can become a pretty deep rut. In essence, what's happening is the power of freedom that God has given us is multiplied as we exercise that freedom, either for good or for bad. And the problem for us is we haven't just made one or two bad choices. We've made thousands and thousands and thousands of bad choices. And those bad choices, freely made, together, combined, to put us in prison to no longer allow us to feel free and exercise freedom. So our past choices end up, as he says, making us prisoners of the law of sin at work within our members. Now, we're still free to do good or bad, but our past choices have now become habits with walls that are so high that it's like we're in prison. These walls form a prison that we can't climb out of. That's the law of the body. We've got this past that we... No matter how hard we try, we can't climb out of it. So what's the law of the mind? The law of the mind, simply put, that's what we want. We are bound to what we want. The way you know this is whenever you don't get what you want, what's your response? Eh, no big deal. Oh, no. We don't get what we want. We are bothered. And we're not just bothered. We go into action to make sure that we have a higher chance of getting what we want next time. Because what we think in our mind, what we decide, what we intend, what we want, we are bound to it. We really want to see that happen. The problem, the difficulty is that what we want in our mind 
isn't bound to reality like our body is. They can impact reality, but it's not bound to reality. I can imagine all kinds of things. But the only way those things are going to become real is if they make their way into my body. And I start doing some stuff. So it's the law that's at work in the members of our body that will determine whether what started in our mind becomes real. So I know these are a lot of laws that might be confusing, so let me describe it this way. Up here we have the law of God above us. This is what God says is good and what God says is not good, is evil, is bad. Then we have the law of our mind. This is whatever we freely decide is good and what is bad ourselves. And then we have the law of our body. That's what we actually do and say. Now, goodness occurs when all three of these line up together. When we agree with the law of the mind that what we want is what God wants. And then we begin to do with the law of the body what that is. That's goodness. And so in addition to power, a new power, what we also need are new habits. We need new habits. This is the subpoint under this problem. So, for example, if I want to be more loving or kinder or more joyful, I can't just decide to do it. I do need to first get the law of my mind aligned with what God says on these topics. This is why Paul says, I, I delight in God's law. This is critical. We're not going to become good people if we disagree with what God says, and we're going to go off on our version of what love is and our version of what kindness is and our version of what good is. No, no we need to first get our, the law of our mind lined up with the law of God. We need to delight in his law, really want to do with it and agree with it. But if we don't develop and work on the habits that support this intention, nothing is going to change practically in reality. That's because, as I said, our body has been recording and deepening the ruts of not loving, of not being kind, of not being joyful. You know, we've all got ruts of being really selfish and grumbling a lot and being really worried and fearful and upset about all kinds of things, not joy and not kindness, not love. You see, every commitment that your mind makes must be backed up and supported by the habits of your body. This is just, again, no law was passed on this. This is reality. This is the way, it's like gravity. This is just the way we are. This happens in every area of life. For example, when I decided to marry my wife 34 plus years ago, no one said a single thing to me about the law of vacuuming or the law of budgeting or the law of communication and all of the sub-laws in that category. No one said anything about that to me. But it is these and many, many other habits that have been critical to support the commitment that I made in my mind and with my mouth 34 years ago. We can't just, in our mind, say, yeah, I want to build a good marriage, and then not build habits that support that decision. And so when I decided to follow Jesus Christ, at that point, I was not thinking, okay, so what, what exactly is my plan going to be for spending regular time with God in the Bible and, and beginning to learn it and do it. I didn't have a plan. Any more than I had a 
budgeting plan or a vacuuming plan when I got married. I didn't have that plan, but I've sure needed to work on that plan if I'm going to make good on that commitment. I didn't really understand how important church was to my growth. I didn't have a plan about how to get involved and how to make that a priority, but it's that habit and many other habits that involve and require my body. In other words, they require me to get up out of bed and do something, go somewhere. Body steps. It's those habits that have supported the commitment that my mind made. Now, I want to be really clear on this. The power of change is not in the habits. The power is in the Holy Spirit. And I say this because sometimes if you begin working on the habits, you begin to experience change, and you might get confused and think, I'm doing it. By the power of my will and my brilliant patterns, I'm beginning to change all by myself. Oh, no, no. No, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's doing it. It's the power that flows through the lines of commitment to Jesus Christ that changes us. It's the habits that help us stay connected to the power lines, but they're not the power. They're just the place that you plug in. So the question for all of us is this. Where are, where are you in the struggle to be good? Are you like me with that watermelon, hoping but not knowing whether or not your life will be good enough? Most people are in this position. They look around them and they kind of, like watermelon, look like everybody else, so they assume, well, we're all good enough. But we're not. Like every one of us, we are all fighting a losing battle in the dark with two D-sized batteries. That's just not enough. It's not going to get it done. You cannot shake the flashlight hard enough to make it bright enough. Or maybe you're on the other side of the goodness spectrum and you're, you're pretty discouraged with the level of your badness. You know, you've been trying and trying and failing and failing for a long, long time now. Maybe you're ready to give up. Turn your back in some area on what God says is good. Don't walk away from what God says is good. Don't defy his laws. What we do, especially what we do in defiance of his laws, leaves a giant footprint on the future and on us. We don't think about it, but the choices we make this afternoon are going to show up long after we're here. The one question that we all need to answer, wherever we're at on this spectrum, is this. The question that Paul asked. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's the most important question we can ask. And the only answer is the next statement. Thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that in your kindness you have not taken the exercise of our freedom as the final truth about us. You have given us yet another chance to align our minds and our bodies with your will. And you've given us a way to do that through your son, Jesus Christ. You've forgiven our past and you've given us access to your power through the Holy Spirit. 
And Father, we are so grateful for that. I pray that you would help us to get back on track wherever we're wandering. We would plug back into your power. And that we would remain faithful, like we're going to talk about next Sunday, long enough for fruit to begin to grow, change to begin to occur. And then, Father, we long for our neighbors and friends and co-workers, people who rub shoulders with us in this community, to know of the only chance there is to be good, the only chance to find forgiveness. Help us as we love them, as we display these fruits, and as we as you give us the opportunity as we explain what you have explained to us. We pray these things now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Andrew?